As I said tonight, we're going to continue our three-part series on um, the life of the Shunammite woman, the gospel in the life of the Shunammite woman, uh, a woman whose account we find uh, three separate times, uh, part of her, her life accounts, three separate times in the Second Kings narrative in chapter 4, and then the last episode, as it were, in chapter 8, which we'll look at later this month uh, during the evening service. But as we've been noting, um, the life of the Shunammite woman is not only exemplary because of her faith, her trust in God's Word, even amidst difficult circumstances, but we see that God's providence in her life, uh, as in our lives, sometimes perplexes us, sometimes leaves us scratching our heads in wonderment. But ultimately, the Lord's Word and His power prevail, uh, and we have every reason to look to Him, even in times of trial and difficulty. Uh, with trust and with confidence. Uh, remember that in the last episode, uh, the Shunammite woman received a son from the Lord. Uh, now we turn to this next episode, beginning in verse 18 of 2 Kings chapter 4, and I'll read through uh, verse 37. This is God's holy word. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. 
Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. We're going to end the reading of God's word there. Well, the last time we encountered the Shunammite woman here in this chapter, 2 Kings, uh, the Lord had just fulfilled her wildest dreams. She was, a, by all accounts, by all appearances at least, a barren woman. And God made a promise, you will receive a son. And she did. At the right time of the year, just as promised, she received a son in her age. And the Lord fulfilled her wildest dreams. Her reproach among the people of Israel was uh, removed. The Lord graciously uh, rewarded her faithful commitment to His Word, even at a time in Israel when there there was much apostasy, much apathy for God's Word. But almost before we can uh, join in the party, join in rejoicing with her, this passage puts us on an emotional roller coaster in which the son that she once joyfully held in her arms, rocked in her arms, now dies in her arms and then is miraculously restored to life again from elation to despair, from heartfelt gratitude to profound grief. That's often the pattern of our own lives as we experience the outworking of God's providence. Even you and I sometimes as believers, we scratch our heads at God's ways as they come to fulfillment in our lives. Perhaps you've seen God grant uh, a great hope or a desire of your heart only to see your expectations shattered later on. Of course, we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, that we should expect all things from God's hand, both rain and drought, both health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. But nevertheless, sometimes the providence of God leaves us perplexed, leaves us grasping for an answer. So we're going to see tonight the the account, the second episode of the Shunammite's life is recorded here for our instruction, to be sure, but also for our encouragement. God's ways are not our ways, but He is trustworthy, and His grace is sufficient for us. God does sometimes, as in the case of Job, give and then take away. But He does that to kindle our longing for our final restoration, our resurrection on the last day. And that is the pinnacle of our Christian desire. We're going to notice, first of all, the Shunammite's faith is tested here in 2 Kings chapter 4. Really, as I said, this is a shocking passage. It puts us on an emotional roller coaster, as it were, because a marvelous miracle had been worked in this woman's life. She received a son in her barrenness. And now, in the second episode, it seems as if that miracle, that marvelous gift from God, has been neutralized, it's been taken away. 
you can't help but notice how painfully short her son's biography is. We read that the child has grown. He goes out into the field with his father's workers and suddenly he has what appears to be a sunstroke of some sort. He's carried to his mother and he sits on her lap till noon and then he dies. Painfully brief. And this woman, this Shunammite woman, who is listed among uh, the great faithful in Hebrews 11, now stands before the greatest test of faith imaginable. But once again, as in the first episode, her spiritual greatness, her faith, stands at the front and center for us to notice and consider. Though this apparent reversal of God's grace, this reversal of God's promise, would have left most of us in, in, in a state of great anxiety and depression and perplexity. Still, her actions demonstrate that she still believes God's word. She knows that her life is still ordered by His infinite love and wisdom. We can only begin to imagine the sorrow that she must have felt, the staggering, stunning, crushing blow that she has experienced, how confused, how complexed, or perplexed rather, she must have felt by God's providential turn in her life, and yet she does not cease to believe God's promise. You notice that after her son dies, she doesn't break out into uncontrolled rage or weeping. She doesn't complain against God. She doesn't accuse Him of being unfair or unjust. She doesn't lash out against God with evil words born of unbelief. In faith, she rests on God's promise and grace, which she clings to, which she knows can sustain her in this moment of trial and great distress. And every action that she takes here in this passage demonstrates her faith in God and His Word, her first and driving thought is, I must consult God's prophet. I must see the man of God. Consider her faith and the details of the passage. The moment the boy dies, where does she lay the dead child? She doesn't lay him on his own bed. She doesn't take him to her bed. She lays the dead boy on Elisha's bed that she had prepared for him in the last episode. She doesn't even tell her husband that the child has died as, as she's saddling up the donkey, as the servant is saddling up their means of transportation. He, he asks her, why are you going to visit the prophet today? It's not a special day when prophets would often be consulted. It's not a mo new moon or a Sabbath or such, some, some such day. She doesn't even tell him what's gone on. She says, all is well. If she can just see the man of God, if she can just consult God's word bearer, the prophet, she knows she'll have her answers. And so she presses on. She presses forward in faith. They push the donkey to his fastest speed until they come to Mount Carmel, some 15 to 18 miles away. Not a small journey at all. She brushes Gehazi aside, saying once again, all is well. I need to see the man of God. And finally, probably exhausted, she falls at Elisha's feet in reverence 
in submission to God's servant, to God, to God's word. And she asks for her need. Even though her sorrow is real, probably the, the sadness, the fear of her barrenness flooding back to her all over again, her dependence upon God and His promises proves to be genuine all along. She turns to Elisha. She turns to her covenant God, the same God that has perplexed her by bringing this severe trial into her life. We're meant to see her astonishing faith. That even in the midst of her trouble, she goes to God because she knows that He has the answer. She knows He will be true to His word. Truly, the Shunammite's example has much to teach us about our Christian response to the perplexities of God's providence that often find their way into our life. What is the proper response of faith? When a loved one who we've cared for uh, overcomes disease only to have that disease return and they lose the battle in the end. How are we to respond when we, when we stand on the side of the truth and yet we, we still suffer embarrassment and loss and opposition? We're not immediately vindicated by God before the wicked. God's providence assures us that we can be patient when things go against us. We can resign ourselves to the living God who reigns so completely over our lives that not even a hair can fall from our heads apart from His knowledge and His will. We can humble ourselves before God, knowing that we are frail creatures who live and breathe only by God's grace, confessing with obedient Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we can have confidence, Paul says in Romans 8, in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love, not even the most severe trial or difficulty that we can imagine. In fact, James says in chapter 1 of his letter that trials can be joyful experiences because they produce steadfastness and good faith. They are evidence that we belong to God. See, God promises triumph victory over the temporary disappointments and trials of this life. And if we put our trust in this God, He will truly reveal His sovereignty and His sufficiency. Sometimes His providence may disappoint us, but we can be sure that the promise of God has never and never will deceive us. And hoping that will leave us never ashamed. But in contrast to the woman's faith, we're struck as we continue to look at this narrative here that, that God's promise to her back in the last episode, God's, God's word seems to be in jeopardy. We can't help but notice in verse 28 that in her despair, the Shunammite utters some very important words to Elisha. She says to him, didn't I say to you, man of God, don't deceive me. Remember in the previous episode, after she had been given this promise from God that she would receive a son, she said, oh Lord, oh man of God, don't lie to me. 
Don't make a promise you can't keep. And now she's lost that son. It seems as if God's word, God's promise, has been neutralized in her life. Didn't I say, don't deceive me? <laughs> Notice what's at stake here. The very word of God, the truthfulness, um, the veracity of God's word is at stake here. Would it remain true after all? That question sort of lingers over the narrative here, and not just that, but God's word-bearer, Elisha the prophet, seems to be out of sorts here all of a sudden. This is Elisha's not-so-great moment in his ministry. Suddenly, he finds himself limited in a couple of ways. He's limited in his knowledge. He sees the woman coming from afar and acknowledges that God hasn't even revealed to him what has happened. He has no idea what her needs are initially. He's limited in knowledge. He's also limited in power. He expects that when he sends Gehazi, his servant, armed with his staff to place it upon the boy, that that will bring about uh, the restoration of the boy's life. But eventually, Gehazi returns with a shrug and a no-can-do boss. It's the woman's persistent faith that finally urges Elisha to go back with her to their home where the boy still lays dead on the prophet's own bed. And they are limited in knowledge, limited in power. Elisha is propelled to prayer. You notice that before he begins uh, his healing, he goes in, he shuts the door, and he prays. He goes to his God in a measure of his own perplexity at what is going on. And he asks for the strength and the wisdom to restore this woman's son. And if you're familiar with the work of Elisha and Elijah, his predecessor, you might find this episode familiar. Because Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 17, had performed a similar miracle in a similar way. You're welcome to turn there with me if you'd like. In 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse uh, 17 there, uh, Elijah is called upon to raise the son of, of the widow of Zarephath. And he comes in uh, in the same way that Elisha comes to the upper room to heal uh, the Shunammite's boy. He, he prays to God, asking uh, that uh, he would have the strength to heal this child. And then in verse 21, we, we notice how he actually brings about that healing. He stretches himself upon the child three times and cries to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And of course, the Lord listened to him and the boy was healed. But you notice the response of the widow of Zarephath to Elijah. After he heals the boy, what does the woman say? Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. You see, God had told the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy 18 that this is how they would know if a, a prophet was a good prophet, a true prophet, a genuine man of God who spoke God's word, if what he spoke came true. Well, certainly... Elisha's promise to the Shunammite woman that she would have a son came true. But now that son 
had died. As I said, the question that lingers over this passage at this point is, will God's word prove to be true? Will Elisha's ministry prove to be genuine? And so Elisha's status as a man of God, as a mouthpiece of God, is at stake. And so he begins his work in prayer. And he stretches himself over the child, very much like Elijah did. Eyes to eyes, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. But even then, he must wait. He paces around the room, probably repeating his prayer, praying for a gracious restoration, a demonstration of God's power in the life of this poor woman. He knows that God alone is sovereign over this event. He is but a servant of God. And then after he acts out his prayer once more, the child sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. We're reminded that life in the Old Testament is associated with breath in the nose. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. This boy came back to life fully alive. And if it were us, I believe we'd probably run to embrace our son before we do anything else. He's alive. He's back. But what does the Shunammite do? First, she worships. She falls at Elisha's feet. She bows to the ground in reverence and in worship of God and then takes that son back into her arms. A son longed for, a son received, a son lost, and then re miraculously regained. A miracle child twice over. Why? Because God's word is true. God's word, his promise, prevails even over death and doubt. Well, none of us are uh, prophets like Elisha was, but we do serve a prophetic role because we belong to Jesus Christ. And as prophets, we pray for, we, we proclaim God's word to, to brothers and sisters in the Lord. We minister to one another in that way. And we're reminded here during Elisha's moment of weakness of our own limitations as servants of God. We don't have all the answers. Uh, we don't have the perfect word of advice for every moment. And so we need to imitate Elisha's humility. Acknowledging that sometimes, as we face God's providential care, sometimes we don't have a clue about what the Lord is doing in our lives or in the lives of others. Even in our own trials and conflicts, there's a freedom when we humbly confess that God alone knows. He's the one who holds the solution to our problems. And when we have no counsel to give, it's okay that we simply pray in faith and in resignation to God's will. There's no shame in begging for an answer from the Lord when we cannot see the reasons for our struggles. We can put our hands over our mouths like righteous Job and simply surrender to His will and rely upon God's goodness with an unwavering faith that God's promises will prove true in the end. His word is eternally trustworthy. When we quietly acknowledge that, even when we can't rationalize the trials that we're going through, and we can be confident God 
will bring those trials to fruition. They will count toward our salvation for all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Well, as a second miracle in the life of Elisha and the Shunammite woman comes to a close, we, we rejoice with her again because the Lord heard the cry of his servant. He graciously restored the life of her precious child. And again, as in the first episode of her life, this would have been a public lesson, not just a private thing. This is not something that could have been kept quiet among the people of Israel. This is a public lesson for God's people to learn that God alone, and not the idol gods that they'd been playing with, God alone can raise the dead. God alone delivers His people. No doubt people would have talked. Have you heard once again about what God did for this woman? He brought her son to life. And so this event in her life was a powerful preview of something even greater that's still to come. The, the, the future great demonstration of God's power in raising the dead. All of us, if we are movie buffs, know that there's some excitement to be enjoyed when the, when the trailer for a new movie comes out. And of course, that trailer doesn't give you all the details. It gives you just snippets of the action, the dialogue, so that your, your interest is piqued. You want to go see that movie when it comes out in theater. Well, similarly, this resurrection, this boy being raised to life, is a sign, it's a foretaste, it's a, it's a sneak peek, a pledge, a promise of the great victory over death that God is going to give to His people, and specifically, it's a foretaste, a preview of Jesus' redeeming and resurrecting work in his own ministry. It's meaningful to note that the town of Shunem, where this woman is from, was located on the southern slope of a, a hill called the Hill of Moray. And just a few miles away on the northern side of that same hill was the village of Nain located in New Testament times. And in that tiny village of Nain, a prophet came with his disciples, a prophet who was greater than Elisha, greater than Elijah. And he came, and there at the city gate, he met a sorrowing widow whose son, only son, had just died. And he restored that woman's son to life. And the people there in the village responded with great rejoicing, and they said, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has truly visited his people. And that, of course, was our Lord Jesus Christ. And though separated by many years, we can almost hear the joyful voices of these two women, the woman of Shunem and the woman of Nain. And their voices ring out and they unite from that one hill. Death shall not have dominion over us. Death shall not reign in the lives of those who believe. And amazingly, the Bible tells us that events like these, these little sneak peeks of, of resurrection glory and resurrection power in the lives of these women, the women of Zarephath, the woman of Shunem, the woman of Nain, they are there, they're recorded here in Scripture for your benefit and for mine. They're here to give us a promise of the resurrection that we look forward to, the resurrection of the body on the last day. 
In fact, as we look at Hebrews chapter 11, we find these women listed as well. The woman of Shunem and the widow of Zarephath are commended there for their faith. By faith, we read, women receive back their dead by resurrection. They had the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And yet we're told that although these women were commended through their faith, they did not yet receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us that apart from them, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They received a foretaste of what was to come, but what we have come to know more vividly in Jesus. The Savior who has come and whose resurrection assures us of our own victory over sin and Satan and death and hell. We have Jesus, the greater Elisha. Elisha's knowledge was limited. He could only acknowledge the Shunammite's grief. But Jesus could tell the widow of Nain not to weep for her dead because he had the power to put an end to her weeping. Elisha had to depend in prayer upon the power of God to raise the Shunammite son. Jesus had only to speak a word, and the young dead man in Nain sat up immediately. The limitations of Elisha highlighted the perfect adequacy of our Jesus, the powerful robber of the grave. And we know that not even the perplexing trials of this life, not even the greatest and last foe of the Christian, death itself, can put us outside the reach of Jesus' power and the sound of his voice saying, come and enter my joy. You see, we can be profoundly grateful for these wonderful previews in the Old Testament of Jesus' resurrecting power in Scripture. They're here to strengthen our faith. They're here to give us assurance that death and disease and paralyzing trials and crushing disappointments will never be victorious in the life of the believer because God promises us the ultimate victory over death through the, the resurrection power of Christ. And that promise in God's Word is absolutely reliable. This passage teaches us something important about our God and His power to turn all things for our good. Yes, God sometimes leaves us perplexed with the mysterious sorrows that He brings into our lives. Sometimes He places limitations on our insight so that we might not know what is going on, but he propels us to prayer, to greater reliance upon him. But the word that he gives us, these sneak peeks, these previews, that not even death will separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, that is the anchor of our hope in the midst of trial. Yes, God gives and sometimes also takes away, but he's faithful. His word is true. His grace is sufficient. And even in the trials of His providence, our, our hope, our longing for the new heavens and the earth is kindled, our true and lasting home. And so we can truly sing, along with these women, along with faithful Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You for this second episode in the life of the Shunammite woman. Truly, O oh Lord, you do bring episodes of providence into our own lives with 
may leave us scratching our heads in wonderment about their purpose, about their goal. Just as this righteous woman must have wondered why, in the midst of her faithful obedience and worship, that this son promised to her would be taken away. But Lord, uh, we, we thank you for these reminders. That you're, you're a God whose sovereign plan is far greater than we can even begin to, to think or imagine. And you have ordained all of our lives for the purpose of glorifying you. We exist for your praise and, and, and for your glory. And all the details of our lives work out perfectly by your sovereign plan so that you might be most glorified on earth and for eternity. And Lord, your word never returns void. Your promises are never made in vain. You work all things according to your infinite wisdom for our greatest good. And so, Lord, help us, like the Shunammite woman in the midst of trial, to seek your word above all, to continue to believe and to continue to worship even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of per being perplexed by your providence. Lord, help us to look forward in faith to the great day when Christ returns and we experience the, the final resurrection of the dead and we enter into the glorious inheritance that you have prepared for us. Help us to keep our eyes upon that great prize, that ultimate hope and goal of our Christian life. Strengthen us in the midst of our frailty. Help us to trust you more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I thought it'd be appropriate to sing of God's faithfulness tonight, so let's turn to that beloved hymn, number 245 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And let's sing all three of those stanzas as we stand together to sing.
Saints of God, as you go forward now into this new week, put your trust in your Creator and your Savior to care for you, to meet all of your needs, and do so with this parting blessing from Him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace. Amen.